This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Oh, another one gets off the rink. Man, I am hopeless at this. There must be a remedial course. All right, here we go with the herring rake again. Uh, seaweed. Very good at catching seaweed. Good grief. Uh, herring are safe for me. Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. On a brilliant day, pale blue sky overhead, sun blazing down over shimmering water in a narrow bay called Herring Bay, auspicious title when you Consider what's happening in here today. My skiff is drifting above a shimmering cloud of herring. I have to imagine that because the herring are in the middle of their spawning season and the water is a beautiful greenish, whitish turquoise color so that you can only see six or eight inches down with the mix of milt and salt water and herring eggs that are being laid just now, you just have to imagine what's happening down underneath. Every once in a while you don't really have to imagine it because you'll see a big school of herring surge up against the shore. I've got my boat anchored about 25 feet off the shore of Herring Bay and between the skiff and the shore every once in a while I'll just see a few hundred herrings surge right up against the rocks. And this mob of several hundred glaucuswing gulls that you hear in the background are all sitting right along the edge of the water. Some of their feet in the water, some a foot or two feet above water level. And they're just waiting for the herring to do that. And when they do, this bunch of gulls lifts up from the rocks instantly and comes and sweeps over. And every once in a while, you'll see one or two of them manage to grab one of those fish. There's some other hungry animals around here too. As I look out across the water, I see 10 or 15 harbor seals. This bay is absolutely filled with herring. I suppose Herring Bay is a little more than a quarter mile deep. And the whole thing appears to be filled up with fish right now. You see them flipping on the surface. It's quite a spectacular sight. The other thing, oh, here it goes, uh, a bunch of the herring. There's one flipping right up against the rocks. Gull grabs it, swallows it. Whoa, did that thing go? Another gull grabs another one, fighting with another gull. Man, do those herring go down fast. Just a big swarm of fish right up against the rocks. The rocks are covered with kelp here, the little rock kelp or sea rack or rockweed. And that rockweed is all clinging right now with whitish gray translucent herring eggs. Another gull, young gull grabs another herring. <laughs> oh, and a bald eagle sweeps out, grabs a herring, just woo, 50 feet off the stern of my skiff. I was about to say when I came idling into this bay, I would say there was a minimum 
of 150 to 200 bald eagles perched along the edge on the rocks and sitting in the trees all around. There's still quite a mob of eagles here too. As I look up in the sky over and behind me, I can see probably 30 bald eagles in a wheeling kind of a flock circling back and forth up there in the blue sky. And then when I look along the edge of the bay and the tall spruces and hemlock trees, I see bald eagles everywhere, including a immature bald eagle sitting in a tree directly across from my skiff, maybe eh, 40 yards away, and a large, mature, white-headed, white-tailed bald eagle just below it on a dead tree that leans out over the water. Lots of stuff going on, and out toward the mouth of the bay, a group of about seven or eight sea lions that every once in a while come bursting up through the water and snorting, and then down they go again. So everybody's busy here, and I'm going to join them pretty soon. I'm here for more than just watching these other animals prey on and scavenge on herring. I'm going to do a little bit of that myself. I've got a tool laid across between the gunnels of the skiff here that is called a herring rake. My herring rake is nine feet long. It's like a long slender lath. It's about an inch wide and a half an inch thick. So if you can imagine this long slender somewhat flexible pole and the lower three feet of it along one of those narrow edges has 33 nails sticking out of it. The sharp end sticking out about an inch long each of those nails. This herring rake is a fishing tool and a most unusual fishing tool. I found this one in the basement of my house 20 years ago when I bought the house I have no idea how old this herring rake might be. It looks in pretty good shape. It's painted green. The edges are still nice and crisp. It's lightweight. It's in very good condition. The nails are a little bit rusty, but still very sharp. They'll still do what they're supposed to do. The house had been built in 1941. How long the rake has been in there? I have no idea. I was very excited to find this herring rake. This is a very ancient tool. It probably dates back many thousands of years the herring rake along the entire North Pacific coast from down around Puget Sound all the way up through southeastern Alaska. It's used especially for herring in the tradition of all the native people of this coast for catching herring during the spawn when they're in great schools as they are now or sometimes when herring could be pushed into a little cove outside of the spawning season, people would put weighted spruce boughs or hemlock boughs down in the water and try to crowd the herring into a corner and they would sweep their herring rakes through the water to catch the fish. They also use them for ulican or hooligan or candle fish, a small fish related to the smelt. Again, another little fish that occurs in tremendous dense schools all up and down the northwest coast and the herring rake was a very effective tool for catching those fish. Ulican, extremely rich in oil. That's why they had that name candlefish, because the oil was used to make light, to burn in lamps. Gulls just sweeping down again, three, four, five gulls, about 25 feet away from the skiff here, right on the shore. They don't seem to care a bit about me grabbing herring. Three gulls each got a herring that time. Bright silver herring flipping in their beaks and gulp, 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 down it goes. I've seen photographs and drawings of Nootka and Kwakiutl Indian herring rakes from down on the coast of British Columbia, seven feet to 12 feet long. Those 
that I saw pictured had a rounded upper end, so they're more stout than the one I have, and then flattening down at the lower end. Probably a better tool than the one I'm using. And the sharp barbs on those traditional herring rakes were made either from round pegs of wood that were sharpened on the ends, or from bones, sometimes, for example, splintered bones off deer legs, rounded, stuck into holes along the edge of the herring rakes, and then sharpened. So these very sharp barbs would impale herring as the rake was swept through the water. And then later, when iron and steel came along, well, it was just such an easy thing to take nails and cut the heads off and insert those nails into holes along the edges of the herring rake, like the one that's sitting right at my feet just now. Traditionally, the herring, whoa, big splash, big surge through the water about 100 yards off the stern of my skiff as a harbor seal just lunges through the school of herring about 10 yards off the edge of the shore here. They were used traditionally in canoes, of course, and swept through the water like a paddle. One of the descriptions I read was of a husband and wife, the wife paddling the canoe, and the husband at the other end of the canoe facing toward her. She would manage the canoe and keep it in the middle of a school of herring while he would sweep his herring rake through those fish. A man named John Jewett, who lived with the Nootka people back around 1805, described their use of the rake to catch herring. And he said, it is astonishing to see how many are caught by those dexterous at this kind of fishing, as they seldom fail when shoals are numerous, of taking as many as 10 or 12 at a stroke, and in a very short time will fill a canoe with them. As I sit here in my aluminum outboard engine powered skiff, in Herring Bay today, all I can do is imagine myself back through thousands of years, perhaps thousands of generations in this very place, to think about the people who came here and used their herring rakes over this vast expanse of time. I don't know if people still travel to bays and coves along the Alaska coast to use herring rakes. I'm the only person I've ever talked to who still does this by the accident of finding the herring rake in my house. I'm sure other people still must. And maybe along the British Columbia coast, I found looking at the BC fishery regulations that the herring rake is mentioned and a season is specified for the use of the herring rake. Nowadays, however, most people use things like jigging hooks, like throw nets, or setting gill nets for herring, special herring nets. There are lots of ways of catching herring today, and I fear that the herring rake has fallen out of use. But I feel a special sense of connection when I use my herring rake. Connection to a tradition that extends far, far back into the past. And doing this deepens my appreciation for the ways that Tlingit people and Haida people and other folks who live along the Alaska coast have bound their lives together with the sea and with the great congregations of fish that flood in from the ocean each spring. This is Mr. Steve Johnson, a Tlingit elder and teacher from the town of Sitka. My name is Steve Johnson. In Tlingit, my name is Ka Yegi, which is the name of my uh, grandmother's father. He was from Angayakit. I am a son of Kiksadi, and uh, my mother was adopted into the uh, Kagwantan clan. 
Her name is Wushte Slot. Achat Hus, Aksani Hus, my own clan. My grandfather, Tuck Ho, had a Haida friend who used to come to me. My grandfather lived on Silver Point over there. I can even show you where the place was and the spring that they uh, had developed there uh, oh. for water. And the Haida man would come in with a canoe, pull it up on the beach. And my, my grandfather said, boy, that's a beautiful canoe. He said, that's for friend, you know. So give him the canoe. So they were pretty friendly with one another up and down the coast, trading things too. So this herring eggs was valuable, and herring was valuable. They uh, made an oil out of it, which I don't see anymore. Uh, delicious. So uh, they'd go out with a canoe, and then they had these rakes, and there were so many herring they just could rake them right into the canoe. Well, unlike those generations of Tlingit people who have mastered the use of the herring rake along these shores, I'm afraid I can't claim any particular expertise at all. Taking my herring rake right now, and here I'm going to sweep it through the water. And again, and again, getting it down about five feet into the water, sweeping it right off the side of the boat. And even though I can see the gulls, right at this very moment, <laughs> catching herring just between me and the shore, not 10 feet away, I'm getting skunked. And this illustrates a point, I think. I'm gonna just keep using my herring rake as I'm speaking here. This illustrates a point that it's one thing to have a simple, elegant tool like a herring rake. Oh, hey, oh, <laughs> I just got two herring on my rake and both of them jumped off before I could get it in the boat. Oh, I'm so excited now. Um, but it's, you see, it's one thing for somebody like me to come out and maybe get on top of a school of herring and catch a couple and lose them as I just did. But it's another thing to really make this a part of your economy and to really be effective at its use, to know how to find the herring, how to get right on top of them, how to sweep the rake properly. We often make a terrible mistake when we look at what appears to be a really simple tool and we fail. Oh, just missed another one. Came popping off the barbs of my herring rake. We fail to understand how much knowledge lies behind it. A simple tool often requires a very complex body of knowledge to operate it properly. And of course there's a great intelligence behind the development of a simple effective tool. And so we must never make the mistake of thinking that because a tool isn't terribly complex, that it reflects an intellect that's not terribly complex. In fact, the exact opposite is true. If you think about trolling, for example, the old time trollers would go out here. They didn't have all this fancy equipment to find fish. They had to know how to find fish. They had to use as the primary tool their mind. That's the sharpest edge of the hunter's toolkit is the human mind. And the same with fishing. And so, here I am out in this bay. I've been here working at this for an hour or so. I have yet to get a single herring in the boat. I'm determined. Eventually, I assume that I will, but not so far. 
from talking with Alaska Department of Fish and Game fishery biologists Bill Davidson and Dave Gordon, I have learned that over the course of this spring, so far there have been more than 70 linear miles of spawn just along the shorelines near Sitka where they're based. They know that from their daily aerial spawn surveys. This is the third largest spawning in historic record-keeping times. That's impressive. But the stories of Tlingit elders, like Steve Johnson, offer a very important and interesting perspective on our ideas of abundance today. Some of the things that I remember that were told to me by my father, uh, uh, Andrew Peter Johnson, uh, whose name was Iktik Ish. I can remember it was like more or less the um, looking in on the culture of our people was like having a door open, just a small crack, and I could look into the room and see that there was a lot more there than, than I was able to uh, take in. I didn't ask questions of my father until I was about 40 years old. He talked about the um, abundance of herring in Sitka Sound. He said when the herring used to come in, they would be all around the islands out here, Japonsky Island and all these other islands that are outside looking in Sitka Sound out towards Thimbleberry Bay. And they would, the whole channel would be milky with a, with a spawn. And when you went out in a canoe, you could stick your canoe paddle down straight in the water and it would stay there from the amount of fish that were against it. And after a while, it would float up very slowly. And that's how many herring there used to be. There were millions and millions. And the birds, the uh, ducks, and the geese were so plentiful that when they take off from some of the harbors like Nakusina or Catalina, it would sound like a jet engine coming up, just like that. There's so many birds coming off the water. And people uh, thought of these creatures as kind of a, a sport. Uh, they'd bring big uh, pleasure boats from down south. They'd anchor up in these bays and they'd shoot and shoot and shoot until the ducks would be just lying all over on the water. And it was a sport for them. They, they enjoyed shooting the, the ducks. And my father's uh, father, uh, Tuck Ho, said that at this rate, there won't be anything left. And <clears throat> then they came and they put um, a price on the herring. And they put a, a herring reduction plant down in uh, Port Alexander, and after a while it, it became so that there was hardly anything left. And at this point it seems like there's a lot, but it's nowhere near uh, that amount of abundance. Eventually, when I catch a few of these fish, as I hope I will, I'll take them home and put them in the freezer and keep them as fishing bait for the summer, maybe have a little feast on them once in a while. My own dependence on herring, of course, is minuscule. It's microscopic compared to that of traditional Tlingit people using both the fish and the eggs. And that's true today, too, because Tlingit people in places like Sitka and other communities along the Alaska coast from southeast Alaska on up to the Bering Sea 
are extremely dependent on these fish. Subsistence for things like herring remains a cornerstone of their economic, social, and cultural life. But then again, the use of fish like herring by native people in Alaska is minuscule compared with that from modern commercial harvests. Steve Johnson. Their uh, philosophy of life was just take what you need for everything, you know. And um, they were thankful for it. So we didn't have the, the we didn't have the term exploit in our language. That's a foreign term. It has uh, connotations that we don't like to think about. Because exploitation can lead to depletion, you know, extinction. All human creatures uh, take their living from the earth. And if we deplete one species, we're harming ourselves with it. That's what happened to some of the people down south as they took out the buffalo and other things. And now uh, they're doing the same thing with fish. too. When we think about many, many traditions of indigenous people like the Tlingit in southeastern Alaska. We can only imagine the vastness of the knowledge contained in their traditions. And yet today, what remains is perhaps fragmentary compared to what was there long ago before the Europeans arrived here. Steve Johnson says that modern Tlingit people can only glimpse a fragment of that vast, rich knowledge that was embodied in this culture before Europeans came. He says, it's like peering through a crack in the door. This evokes a vivid image of people standing inside a dark room, yearning to see what's out there in the light. What can they see out there through that narrow opening in the door? As Steve Johnson says, we're all here together now, all of us from our diverse cultural backgrounds and experience. And when it comes to the knowledge and wisdom contained in Alaskan native traditions, all of us face an enormously consequential decision. We can close that door forever, and we can allow the elders' knowledge to die with them. Or we collectively, as the people of Alaska, can start pushing that door open. And what's on the other side might be profoundly important for us all. Oh boy, big bunch of fish right here. All right, I have drifted to what now I would judge to be a really good looking place with lots of herring around. I'm actually catching herring on the rake. I'm guessing this is the kind of spot where somebody who actually knows what they're doing would come to use a herring rake. And I suppose over thousands of years, this is exactly how people learned there's a very steep shore here, 
It drops right down into the water and you can tie your boat right onto the rocks. My first catch was a, was a starfish, but then since then I've been catching herring. Yes! Okay, is it blind luck? Is it perhaps a tiny bit of skill? I am starting to catch herring. There's one right there into the boat. Can I get two in a row? No, that's going too far. But I can see the fish flipping against the shore here. You know what? It's quite a bit of work doing this, but it's that kind of work that I call plurk. A beautiful combination of play and work. And there's another herring right there. Oh, straight into the bucket. Combination of play and work where it doesn't really count as work because it's too much fun. And there's that sense of richness that you get and satisfaction when you're providing your own food for yourself. I want to thank Alaska Department of Fish and Game biologists Bill Davidson and Dave Gordon for their help guiding me to the places where the herring are spawning and teaching me about these fish. And may I express my gratitude to Mr. Steve Johnson and to his son, the younger Steve Johnson, for bringing us together and engineering our recorded conversation. Also, may we remember to thank each of the elders for their teachings, which are perhaps the most valuable and fragile of all of Alaska's great treasures, bringing us toward a deeper understanding of Alaska and of our place on this land and along the edge of this sea. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. Thank you so much for your company. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The writer, host, and executive producer is Richard Nelson. Ken Fate is the engineer and producer. 
theme music by Outback. Funding for Encounters provided by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Martha Wyckoff and Jerry Tone, the Leedy Foundation, the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, and the Skaggs Foundation. Thank you.